Our scripture reading uh, this morning uh, comes from the Psalms, Psalm 116. Uh, If you'll want to follow along in the the Pew Bible, it's found kind of halfway on page 510 and then finished up on page 511. We're taking a little uh, detour from 1 Corinthians uh, just to focus on this message for the... um, this particular season, this particular week, and also as we're looking forward to um, Advent, uh, to the coming of Christ, and kind of anticipating that, um, we're actually going to be having an Advent series uh, that we're going to be beginning in the the month of December. So uh, we'll we'll be back in 1 Corinthians next week, so don't worry. Uh, Let's stand together, shall we, for uh, Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our Lord is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation. And call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord. In your midst. O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. You may be seated. Let's take a moment and we'll reflect on God's word. You know, the series that we've been in, in uh, Corinthians, is uh, the title is, you know, looking at life through the lens of the gospel, kind of taking this truth of the gospel story and then laying it over the life of the church. And kind of looking at how to negotiate all these issues and problems and questions in the church uh, in light of the gospel. And so what I want us to do this morning is, is not really that different. Uh, but what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at the gospel story. And we're going to look, trying to look through the lens of the gospel uh, at the problems of one person's life in particular. The, the, uh, the story that's kind of described by this psalmist. So just imagine for me, if you would. Uh, just imagine you're, and you can close your eyes if you'd like, but you know, don't fall asleep. Just imagine that, that you're leaving the worship service today 
and you've been kind of lingering around and, and saying hi to everyone. And, uh, but you know, maybe you come back in late. You left your Bible or you left your phone like I do all the time. And you come in and, and you pick up what you need. And as you're walking out, the lights are even all turned off. And you just notice one person still sitting in the seats. And, and this person is, is still there, kind of leaned over in their seat. And you notice it, they're, they're kind of silently, quietly praying. Their hands are lifted up, and, and, and you just see every now and then them kind of take a glance up at the cross. And, and you feel as though um, you, you're trying not to stare, <laughs> but you're really interested, right? And, and you see that although this person's cheeks are damp with tears, their face just seems radiant, And long after everyone else has stopped worshiping, it seems like this person doesn't want the worship service to stop. And and you feel almost uh, awkward, (laughs) like you've just stepped in on this really personal, holy moment. and, and, And you're embarrassed to intrude, but you're fascinated. I mean, you're totally absorbed by this person and you just it seems like they they kind of get it like they've gotten God in some way that that you don't. And you want whatever they have. And so you start thinking to yourself, who is this person? I mean, I've never seen this person before. What's their story? What brought them here? And just as you're kind of trying not to stare, but you're, you're asking these questions of this person, um, really just shamelessly staring at them now. Uh, as you're thinking this, the person looks up and they turn and they notice you and they smile because they're, they're a little bit embarrassed. And they say, sorry, um, I I thought I was alone in here. And you say, you know, you really love him, don't you? God, I mean, uh, Jesus. And the person says, why, absolutely. (laughs) Yes, I do, uh, more than anything. And because you can't resist, (laughs) you ask the question that that has been burning on your lips. You say, why? (laughs) Why? Why do you love him? If if you don't mind me asking, what has transformed your life so much uh, that you want to sit here and thank God after everyone has left? Now, whatever the answer to that question might be, I I want you to just picture that person. Because the the psalmist is, is unnamed. We don't know who wrote this psalm. But whatever the answer to that question is, why do you love God so much? What makes you want to sit and thank God? Well, that's the question that the psalmist is trying to answer for us. So instead of just leaning in on that person, I want you to lean in right now onto the text and just bend your ear as the psalmist explains to us uh, their story of how God's grace transformed their life. And really, it's a story that has three acts, (laughs) Um, kind of like a three-act play. The beginning, we'll call uh, Act 1, pleading. Act 2, right in the middle, we'll call it placing. And Act 3, praising. Uh, Each are important, and we're going to deal with them one by one, but we're actually going to reverse the order a little bit. We'll go pleading, praising, and at the end, we'll talk about placing. 
So what's the story of this psalmist's life? Let's look at the very beginning, the first act, which I'm going to call the act of pleading in pain. You can see it in in verses 1 through 7. This is the setting for the story, this profound pain that this person is experiencing. He says, she says, the psalmist says, I was suffering. Now, we don't know what caused it, but we, but we can understand. We can sympathize. Uh, we've suffered before. We, we know what these emotions are like. Look at how he describes it in, in verse 3. The snares of death encompass. They entangled me. The pangs of Sheol, but the howling of the grave, the pains of the grave laid hold on me. I suffered. I was a person who was suffering. I was distressed. I was anxious. I was stressed out. (laughs) I was in anguish. I was in pain. I was in agony. This is the setting for this person's cry. And so they're, they're, they're feeling this. They're sitting in this pain and they plead to God. They cry out to God. They're pleading with him. They're begging for him. And listen to what they say. This, this is so fascinating. They remember God in the middle of their pain. This is what they call to mind. They're remembering God. They're remembering his character, that he is a listening God. Uh, this, this image in verses 1 and 2, I love this. He heard my voice. And, and look, verse 2, he inclined his ear to me. The picture is kind of that God is stooping over kind of parting the clouds, as it were, to, to bend down and put his ear as you whisper your plea. He said, what's, what's going on? Tell me about it. He's a listening God. He's a gracious God, verse 5. He's a merciful and a righteous God. His heart is poured out to those who are in pain, to those who are in need. And he's righteous. He always does what's right. He's always right. He's never wrong. You can never find fault with him. He's a preserving, a protecting God. And what's important here uh, with what the psalmist is doing, I think what's what's really instructive for us is when we're in pain, what we want to think about is our pain. I mean, pain has this uh, tendency to make you really self-centered. And understandably, I mean, your body does it naturally. Like uh, if you've stubbed your toe, all the blood rushes to your toe because your body's saying, hey, we got to focus on this toe. Something's really uh, messed up here. And, and then, you, you know, your toe sends a signal to your brain to say, pay attention to me. Put ice on me. Look at me because I'm in pain. I mean, that's this natural thing that happens. But what the psalmist does here is, is incredible. Instead of focusing on his pain... He reminds himself of God's character. And and look what he does. I I love this. He preaches to himself. Essentially, in in verse 7, what he does is he looks at himself. He looks at his soul and he says, soul, sit down. Simmer down. Cool down, soul. Just relax for a minute. Because God's been bountiful to you. He's dealt graciously with you. He's been generous to you. 
uh, Eugene Peterson translates this verse. He says, relax and rest, soul. God has showered you with blessings. Do you understand? Do you understand, soul, how great God's love is for you? How much he's poured himself out for your benefit? Now, you know, they say, uh, people say, that the first sign of insanity is you start talking to yourself. Uh, So typically, you know, if you are walking down the street and you see someone talking to yourself, you go, something not quite right there. And you might step aside if you're uh, not compassionate. Uh, If you struggle with compassion like me, you might do that. Um, But I would argue that actually for the Christian, the first sign of spiritual insanity is that you stop talking to yourself. Uh, let me show you what I mean. Uh, some of you have, have heard about uh, a preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he preached in, uh, he's really Welsh, but he had a ministry in England, kind of the middle part of the 20th century. He was a physician, and then he went into the ministry. And he wrote one book in particular that's super famous, still never been out of print. Uh, it's called Spiritual Depression. And I think the reason it's never been out of print is because a lot of people get spiritually depressed. And Christians want to know, what do I do? <laughs> And so like a good doctor, uh, he offers um, his prescription. And, and just let me read to you from this book. This is what he's, he says here. Speaking to Christians, he's saying, Christian, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take, for instance, those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, uh, etc. the problems that you imagine problems of tomorrow. But as soon as you wake up, you start listening. You start hearing yourself talking to yourself. Who's talking? Somebody's talking. He says, you're talking. Yourself is talking to you. And then he, he says this, and I think this is this is wonderful. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. And I love that he calls it an art and not a science, by the way. Because he's saying that there's a a skill to it, that it's not like a math problem, but it's something you need to be sensitive to, and you need to have an eye for it, and you you need to, to approach it carefully in the right frame of mind. But he's saying the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. So what do we do? He says you have to take yourself in hand, grab a hold of yourself. You have to address yourself. You have to preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. That's what the psalmist is doing right here. He's grabbing a hold of himself in the middle of his pain and he's saying, self I know that you think that your pain is the biggest thing in your life right now, but let me tell you, it is not. There is a bigger story. There is a bigger character on the stage right now. And that is God, and he has been faithful. He's been faithful in the past. He's being faithful right now, and he's pledged himself to be faithful in the future. So just sit down, rest, relax, remember And so the question I have uh, for us this morning is, do you mainly listen to yourself 
and to your pain and to your circumstances? Or do you know the art of preaching to yourself? Do you even know how to do that? When you're in the car, when you're driving to work, or even today, getting uh, your kids to church, when your soul feels disquieted, are you listening to your discomfort? Are you listening to your frustration? Or are you grabbing yourself in hand and saying, soul, remember who you are. Remember who God is. Do we know how to speak to ourselves? If you don't know how to do that, maybe it's good to grab a friend, to grab a Christian brother or sister and just say, hey, what do you do when you feel like you're about to fly off the handle? What do you do? What do you say to yourself? Is there a verse of scripture that's helpful? Is there something, maybe it's just, I'll read Psalm 116 and I'll grab this little section and I'll talk about God's character. He's merciful, he's gracious, he's in control. He's bending all, all things toward our good and his glory. So the psalmist is pleading with God in private and he's preaching to himself in private. But there's another side of the coin here. Uh, the end of the story is that this kind of private devotion leads to public praise. And, and that's really, uh, th- there's two sides of our spiritual life. We, we talk, uh, when we talk about getting in the word together as a church, we want to talk about certainly uh, having a quiet time, which um, if you didn't grow up being a Christian in the, I think, the 40s through the 90s, you may not know what a quiet time is. But a quiet time is uh, what... Uh, Christians, uh, evangelicals mainly recently have called just getting alone with Jesus. It doesn't necessarily have to be quiet, but what you're doing is it's an act of private worship. You're not just reading the Bible, but you're worshiping Jesus in private. Uh, you're praying, um, you're reading, you're being silent. It's what we try to do with the daily office. And, and the, the, the main thought behind this is it's not just I'm getting through this routine, but I'm getting the routine into me. I'm getting it into my bones. But we know that that's only half of the story. I mean, all that private devotion is supposed to pour out into public expressions of praise and thanksgiving. And so what the psalmist does naturally is he doesn't say, well, I'm just going to get back in my prayer closet now for the next 20 years. And just pray and thank God quietly. No, he says, I'm going to go to church. My relationship, he's saying, is not just about me and Jesus, but it's about me, Jesus, and the rest of the covenant community. It's not just about Jesus present with me, but also about Jesus present dwelling among us as the church, as we worship the Lord together. And so the psalmist is recognizing that the Lord has called them both to private devotion and also to public praise. And so naturally, that private time of devotion uh, uh, spills out at the end of this story into praising God in public. Uh, you see this in the second half of the psalm, verses 12 through 19. And we'll just, just look at a couple parts of this. Uh, first, what, what, what does this public praise consist of? Well, first, look at verse 13. It's about receiving grace. 
verse 12, he sets up this question. He's going, what should I do? I mean, what should I do? What should I say to give back to the Lord? How can I show my thankfulness to the Lord? And then he says something strange in verse 13. He says, well, I'll lift up this cup of salvation. And and the idea is, is that God has given him a cup and he's going to drink it. So basically he goes to the party and he's got his gift that he's bringing. And then as soon as he gets to the party, someone says, hey, uh, I want you to receive first. I want to give you something before you give something. I don't know if you notice how strange that is, but but he's approaching God saying, God, I got to give you something. God, I got to give you something. God, I, I really need to give you something back. And God is saying, let me give you something. And it's almost as if the psalmist is saying, but you've already given me so much. And God said, that, yeah, because I'm generous. Would you let me give you something else? Would you just receive from me? I mean, this is staggering, <laughs> this generosity. But this person comes to sacrificially give to the Lord. And what they end up doing is receiving from the Lord's gift of himself. Uh, This is totally uh, surprising. Um, And so we shouldn't be surprised, actually, (laughs) because, you know, when you go to praise God in public, when you go to give a gift to the Lord, when you go to show thanks to someone, there's always a little bit of kind of splashback (laughs) where it kind of rebounds to your own benefit, does it not? When it feels good to say thank you. I think the Lord has kind of wired us this way. I mean, it feels good to praise God. And of course, we come to church and we're saying, we're glorifying you. We're lifting you up. But don't you feel lifted up too? That's the generosity of the Lord. He's saying, because I'm so generous, I'm never going to stop giving to you. (laughs) Because you're my people. And I love you. And I'm a provider. And I'm unbelievably resourceful. I have cattle on a thousand hills. You can't outgive me. So he's receiving grace from the Lord, but then he moves from receiving grace to resolving. <laughs> Look at all the times he says, I will. We've got verse 2, verse 9, 13 and 14, 17 and 18. He's saying, I will offer, I will call, I will pay. He's making a decision. Uh, he's planning it out. This is a, a conscious act to express thanks, thanks to God. Um, it's not totally spontaneous. And I think this is an interesting point for us, by the way, because if you're like me, you tend to think that the most genuine acts that you could possibly do, uh, the most genuine gifts that you can do are just the ones you spontaneously think of, you know, off the cuff. So you say, oh, it just kind of came to me to do this or to say this. Not everything that comes into your mind in the moment is a good thing to say or to do, by the way. I've I've learned this uh, the hard way. (laughs) And so this person, he's actually submitting these thoughts about how to praise God, about how to respond to God to the test of uh, his brain. (laughs) And he's considering it for a little bit and he's waiting for a little bit. And then he's exercising his will. 
He's saying, you know, I'm going to have to exercise some effort. So I'm planning to go and do this thing. I'm going to make uh, uh, my praise to the Lord, to pay my vows to the Lord. And here's a great, just by the way, rule for goal setting. Uh, It's not a goal if it doesn't have a timeline or a location attached to it. Meaning if it doesn't have a due date and it doesn't have a context, it's not really a goal. It's just a dream. So this person isn't just saying, man, I really like to praise the Lord. New Year's resolution, I'm going to praise the Lord. No, he's saying, I'm going to praise the Lord. This is what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do it here in the temple in the midst of God's people. So he's, you can tell he's put a lot of thought into it. This is good goal setting uh, in Christian worship. Maybe he didn't think that that was uh, con- compatible, but it is. So he's planning to rejoice with God's people. He's thinking, I have to get to church. Why is it so important that he does this publicly? We talked about it a, a little bit before, but I think when we worship the Lord in private, we're preaching to ourselves, right? But when we're worshiping God in public, we're actually preaching to one another. And this is so helpful. And this, this is so necessary because it's really, you can come to church and think, well, that guy up on the stage, he's the preacher. And, you know, well, I'll listen to him, but, but maybe, maybe not. And then, uh, but what's your... Really, what we should be thinking is that all of us are are preachers. All of our lives are preaching all of the time. And it's even more so when we come together in the worship service. And so as we get together, we're, we're not just looking forward up at the stage, but we're looking side by side. And that's why it's so great to hear one another sing, because you're encouraged That's why it's so good to confess your sins corporately. Because when I hear my neighbor's voice, just kind of catch, I know they're really struggling with something. And so then I can pray for them, or then I can be edified to know that they're gutting it out (laughs) and they're coming, uh, that they're, they're resolving to praise the Lord despite their pain. That's tremendously helpful. And it's not just for us in the congregation that we need our praise to be public. It's also for those on the outside. Uh, There are seekers and doubters among us, I should hope. And if there's some of you who don't know where you stand with God, odds are is that you're coming into church and you want to see what it looks like lived out. You're coming to go, if I'm going to jump in, if I'm going to trust God, I want to see if this works. I want to see what it looks like lived out in the life of someone else. I want to see if it actually makes any difference. And unless we bring our praise public, unless we live our lives in such a way that our love for God is made manifest publicly, transparently, in a way that the outside world can watch and see how much God matters to us, well, then we're missing out. And they're missing out because they don't just need to hear it from up here. They need to hear and know that God is good from out there. But we cannot simply move from this kind of sense of private pain uh, to public praise just immediately. It, does, it doesn't work that way. And as some of you know, I mean, if you've been struggling in pain, sometimes that transition takes a really, really long time. 
And so I don't want to minimize uh, the struggles that, that so many I know are having because sometimes we have chronic pain, these relationships that last um, that are difficult for a long time. We have issues, indwelling, besetting sins that dog us. But how do you make the transition? How do you flip from crying out in your pain to praising God in public? Well, the psalm is split kind of into to two parts here. But the middle section is this hinge that I think is really the most important section to grasp for that reason. Uh, the hinge is right here in verses 8 through 11, and it's really centered around two words. This is the heart of the psalm. This is what the psalmist wants us to focus on. And it's almost, if you, if you looked at the structure of the poem, it's kind of pointing in. Like there's a, there's a triangle here that's pointing into these two words, and there's a triangle at the bottom that's pointing up to these two words, and those two words are, I believed. If we're going to move from pleading with God in private to praising him in public, we need to learn first to put all of our hope in Christ. And that's the third act. That's the thing that it all hinges on is placing all of our hope in Christ. The question that the psalmist is asking here, if if you look in verses 8 through 11, he's basically going, who am I supposed to trust? Who's faithful? Who's reliable? Who can handle my pain? Who can handle my life? Who can I run to? And you see in verses 8 through 9, he's talking about God's faithfulness. And then 10 and 11, he's talking about the unfaithfulness of everybody and everything else. I think what the psalmist is saying is that everything that you put your hope in besides God is just a wet paper bag. If you've ever tried to get the groceries in the rain, you know what I'm talking about. That I mean, you've got like something leaking in the bottom of your bag or something, but you've got a paper bag, and if it is wet on the bottom, brother, you're not going to get that thing home without dropping it. Uh, because a wet paper bag is far too weak and leaky a vessel to hold whatever goods you're bringing home from the store. And in the same way, Any created thing, a person, a relationship, your job, your money, your home, your reputation is far too weak and leaky a vessel to sustain your hopes and your dreams. You cannot build your life on it. It is a foundation that will crumble. And so what the psalmist is saying is I got to roll all of my hope I've got to roll all of my trust off of these things on to God. This is the pivot for a Christian's life. I'm repenting of putting all my trust in these other things, in these other people, in these other situations, and I'm going to roll all of it, all my hopes, all my dreams. I'm going to put my faith fully on Jesus Christ. I'm going to take it off created things. I'm going to put it on to the creator. When he's saying, I believed in verse 10, what is he believing? (laughs) He's believing that God's faithful. He's believing that God's powerful. And not only that, that he's faithful and powerful, but that God is going to be faithful and powerful and gracious and merciful to him. 
Uh, Martin Luther said this. He said, uh, the Christian life is all about personal pronouns. So to know that God is faithful is one thing. To know that God is good is another thing. To know that God has been good and has been faithful and merciful to me, well, that's what makes you a Christian. So he's not just believing in God's abstract goodness. He's believing that God will keep his promises to his people. And so he's placing his trust in that. He's knowing that that God ordains all things, that he holds everything in his hands. And then he's, he, he knows that God is turning everything. He's bending everything in creation. Heaven and earth. Leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty. He's bending all those things to his glory and to his people's good. He is determined to show himself a gracious and a good father to his people. This is what Jesus means uh, when he uh, in Matthew 10 Uh, He's talking to his disciples and he's saying, do you know how much God cares for you? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? I mean, these little sparrows you can get two for a penny. But not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father knowing it. But listen, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value, more value to God than the sparrows are. The psalmist isn't just excited about the idea that God is in control, but that God is moving everything for the benefit of his people. That in the end, he knows all things will work out for good. So we know that he's kind of placing his hope somewhere. He's believing in something, in someone But why do I say he's placing all of his hope in Christ? Well, you might be saying Christ isn't in this book. He's not in the Psalm. Same, you're in the wrong testament. Uh, He's in the right half of the book. But I, I will say this. Christ is the covenant mediator. He is the fountain. He is the hallway. He is the, um, he is the gate through which All of the blessings that God promises to his people enter in and they pour out through him. He is a fountain of mercy. And so it is through Christ that all God's benefits come to his people. And not only that, he in his person is the revelation of the generosity and the faithfulness of God. We look at Christ and we know that God is good and we know that God cares. And we know that God will one day make all the wrongs right. And we'll make all things new. And in Christ, all the promises of verse 8 come true. Look at this. Verse 8. Rescued my soul from death. Rescued my feet from stumbling. And I love this one maybe the most. He's rescued my eyes from tears. Those words of Christ in Revelation 21 where he says, Behold, I'm making all things new. And I will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And finally, Christ is the fulfillment of this psalm. You might not know this, but um, 
at every Passover celebration, it was customary for um, some psalms to be sung. And there was a certain section of psalms that they sung at every Passover meal. And the first half of the meal, um, they would sing Psalm 113 to 114. Uh, Praise the Lord, servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Psalm 115. Israel, trust in the Lord. He's your help and your shield. The Lord is remember us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. Uh, Most people think that's what Jesus and his disciples sang at the Last Supper. They're having this Passover meal and they're singing these songs. And then at the end of the meal, we know what happens. Jesus takes up the cup. And he says, behold, this is the new covenant in my blood. This cup is the new covenant. And he passes it around to his friends to drink. And then after the meal, Jesus goes to the garden with his friends. And he says, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here. Watch with me. And then you remember what happens. He falls to the ground. And he's praying He said, if it were possible, I'm praying that the hour might pass. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you, what you will will. Now, earlier that night, before Jesus left the upper room, he had sung these words from Psalm 116, where it says, I will lift up the cup of salvation Call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord. I will keep my promises to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Isn't that fascinating? Jesus is singing about the cup. He's speaking about the cup. And he's praying about a cup. And the cup of salvation is the cup that we get to drink. It's the cup of God's mercy. It's the cup that he extends to those who, who um, live under the new covenant made in Jesus' blood. But in order for us to drink from that cup, he had to drink another cup. The cup of God's wrath. In the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed. And he pours out from it. And the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs. Isaiah 51. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. This is a cup of God's wrath that makes people stumble and stagger. It's too strong to drink. It's too strong to handle. And this is the cup that Jesus took And drank for you and for me so that we could drink from the cup of salvation. It is only because of his generosity, because of his sacrifice, that we can move from pain to praise. That we can call on the name of the Lord. And that we can know that he will keep his promises to his people. Because when Jesus cried out. He did not let the cup pass, but he drank it all the way down. And guess what? There's not a drop left for you and for me. And so now we can drink the cup of salvation. And it's only as we put our hope in Christ can we see how to be truly thankful to God. 
can, can we express our thanks and our gratitude to him, not out of a sense of obligation or like paying God back, but out of a sense of gratitude for all that he's done, for how generous he has been, for how lavishly uh, he's poured his love out on his people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your generosity towards us, Lord. You you have poured yourself out in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, you have been so gracious to us. Lord, you have dealt bountifully with us. You've given us so many blessings in this life. Lord, also, uh, most importantly, you've given us your son. So that even now, as as we cry out to you, as we plead with you, as we struggle with you in the midst of pain, that we can look forward to a day when death and dying and crying will be no more. We thank you for your generosity. Lord, you have dealt bountifully with us. We thank you. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.